0: Welcome to the Functional Nutrition Podcast with Aaron Holt, Functional Nutritionist. I work with clients on the seacoast of New Hampshire and virtually all over the world through both private consultations and online nutrition programs. I'm here with my co-host, Kyle Mayorana, Registered Dietitian of Root Down Nutrition based in Asheville, North Carolina. We are both board-certified integrative and functional nutritionists. This means we dive deep with people to get to the root cause of their health issues. In this podcast, we will address all things health, food, and nutrition, discussing our research, clinical experience, and life experience. Please keep in mind our disclaimer. This podcast is created for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or medical treatment. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. All right, guys, we're back with another awesome show and I'm going to try to say pretty tight-lipped because my guest has a lot of wisdom to share with us. So it is going to be a kind of a call and response episode. Um, Lisa Hendrickson-Jack is a certified fertility awareness educator and holistic reproductive health practitioner. You guys might be familiar with her from her show, The Fertility Friday Podcast, which is an excellent show. You have to check it out if you haven't yet or her new book, The Fifth Vital Sign, where she debunks the myth that regular ovulation is only important when you want children. We were just talking before the show. (laughs) She sent me this book a couple weeks ago, so I got to read through it. And I'm 35 years old and was learning things about my body that I had no idea about up until this point into reading her book. So I'm going to link to that in the show notes. Everybody needs to order that. I feel like it's a user's manual for your female (laughs) body. (laughs) I don't know why it's taken this long, but here we are. Um, The thing that I love a lot about your work, Lisa, is that it draws heavily from current scientific literature. So you present evidence-based approaches to fertility awareness and menstrual cycle optimization. It's not just, I think a lot of people, when we start talking about like charting our cycle with the moon and that sort of thing, it can be like a little too far out for people, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So I, I love the fact that you pull in science and you're like, yeah, this, this this is validated in science because a lot of people need to hear that um and lisa teaches women to chart their menstrual cycles so we'll talk about that for natural birth control conception and monitoring overall health so thank you so much for being on the show lisa i'm wicked excited to have you here (laughs) well thank you so much for having me we had so much fun just in the pre-chat so i know we're gonna
1: have a lot to talk about but you're not alone um it's part of the reason why I've been just doing this work because uh whenever women discover just because this is just the basic information about your cycle like this is how your cycle works this is what happens before you ovulate you know this is how you can tell and all those types of things and as you know like these are things we should just be taught about our bodies but since we're not um we kind of have to like people like me and you know the the growing number of fertility awareness educators out there trying to spread the word. It's it's taking us to bring this information to the light because it's just, it's obviously not a part of the standard curriculum.
0: And I think one of the, the big things that you bring up is that uh, blood has more to do th- than just like just baby making, like the fact <laughs> yeah. that we bleed, like there's a lot more to it than just, are we going to get pregnant or are we not? And I think a lot of women... Who have no interest in having children or are beyond um, childhood bearing age or just aren't thinking about fertility um, kind of turn this part of themselves off. They're like, I don't really need to worry about that. It doesn't matter if I'm menstruating, it doesn't matter if I'm ovulating. Um, But I want to say that it does. And Lisa's going to explain why. We're not just talking to women looking to get pregnant here on the show, we're talking to everybody. um, And we're going to talk about how our cycle is related to overall health. Now, I had mentioned to you that we had Dr. Jolene Brighton on the show, um, and she talked a lot about birth control and some of the fallouts of birth control. And after that show, the number one question that I've been getting is, well, okay, if I choose to come off birth control or that's not a viable option for me, what can I use as non-hormonal birth control. And I think people are still looking for that magic pill or the magic bullet or the easy answer. But I think what it really requires is learning more about our female bodies. So let's just dive right into the title of your book. Why did you choose to name it the fifth vital sign? What does that even mean?
1: Um, Well, I love that question. Uh, I I mean, I named the book The Fifth Vital Sign because there are a growing number of health professionals who are arguing that the menstrual cycle is a vital sign. And so the vital signs that we're most commonly, you know, familiar with would be, say, your body temperature, your heart rate, your respiratory rate, how many breaths you take each minute, your blood pressure. And we all have a sense that, you know, if you go to your doctor and they're checking your vitals, there's an accepted range of what's considered normal and then if your say blood pressure was too high or too low not only would it tell the doctor that there's something wrong but it would also point the doctor into a specific direction right like uh, temperature is a good example of that if your temperature is too high well (laughs) it probably means you have some sort of an infection right Uh, it, it gives us very specific information or at least a specific place to look for what could be wrong. And the menstrual cycle is very much the same. I think a lot of women are really surprised, especially if they start kind of getting into charting or even just getting into cycle tracking. Even if you just pay attention to, you know, when you have your periods and kind of note them in an app. If you start paying attention, you'll notice that your cycles they, they vary, they're not always the same. You're not a robot, you know, there's no woman alive that has a cycle every 28 days from her first period to her last one. It's not a real thing. Um, and our cycles vary with things like stress and travel and illness. And so if there's an underlying health issue that's affecting you, you can expect to see certain changes in your cycle. And I think that um, really and truly the message that I'm trying to share is that your menstrual cycle is always reflecting your overall health. And so one of the analogies, because I I love analogies, so I'm full of them, but one one of the analogies that I like to use is, you know, if I want to go, if if I want to buy a car, you know, I go to the car dealership and I can choose whether or not to have the air conditioning. So whether or not I put in the AC, the engine's gonna run, you know? It doesn't have an effect on how the engine is running. And somehow we've been sold this idea that we can just shut on and off our periods, right? We can just take the pill and, sh- cause the pill suppresses ovulation and shuts down the cycle. And so when you're on it, you're not getting a true menstrual bleed, you're getting a withdrawal bleed. A lot of women don't know that. There's a lot of myths about the menstrual cycle that are kind of intertwined with myths about fertility and myths about the pill. And one of the biggest myths about the pill is that it regulates your cycle and you keep getting a period. Uh, But the pill takes away your period, it shuts down your normal endocrine function there, and then it replaces it with a fake bleed. Uh, So, I mean, just knowing that is, (laughs) is important, but when it comes to that analogy with the car, if you shut down regular ovulation, it's not like the AC on a car, you know, the engine doesn't just keep functioning normally. And so that's why there's all of this, as what you mentioned in your interview with, you know, Dr. Julian Brighton, uh, the fallout. So when you shut down a woman's endocrine function, the fallout is ridiculous and so in the fifth vital sign in my book there's two chapters on the fallout (laughs) Um, with over 250 references to back up all the different things that happen from depression to low libido and um, delayed return of the normal fertility and all these different types of things. Uh, So the main message is that your cycle is important whether or not you ever plan to have children because as women we came with a menstrual cycle. It's not menstrual cycle sold separately, it's not an (laughs) added feature. (laughs) (laughs) that you can like turn on and off and it has no effect it's so central to our just our being that when you shut it down or interfere with it it actually affects all kinds of things um you know even how we process nutrients minerals and that's why the pills associate with nutrient like it just goes on and on and on
0: yes um (laughs) i'm like jotting down (laughs) feverishly writing notes um well, one thing that you brought up is that the pill doesn't regulate cycle, but that's the, our cycles, but that's what we're told over and over again. I've had clients that I've sent back to their doctors after finding hormonal imbalance and really the only option they're given for hormonal imbalance is to go on the pill. So it's this message that's just keeps being told over and over again. I've also had clients with irregular menstrual irregular menstrual cycles whose physicians have told them as long as you're menstruating 3 to 4 times a year, it's not a big deal. Like don't worry about it. So you would say that that's probably not the case.
1: Well, uh, I would say that it's not the case, but I'd also say that there's no scientific evidence to support that st- statement that four cycles a year is totally fine. Um, so uh, one of the uh, a really good example of how the menstrual cycle is like a vital sign is in the case of something like hypothalamic amenorrhea, or even your example of three or four periods a year or something like that. And so, you know, in addition to being able to have babies, the menstrual cycle is linked to a number of different... Uh, factors health factors one of them being bone mass uh, so for a woman who so hypothalamic amenorrhea is when a woman stops menstruating and it's typically a combination of over exercise under and stress so there's actually uh, a, a specific uh, I don't know if you call it a syndrome but there's a specific title for um, especially for athletes because we kind of have a sense that this happens with athletes Olympic athletes and there's a condition called the female athlete triad and so that's when you've got a sport where typically the sport is you know characterized by thinness so things like gymnastics or ballet or um, just figure skating I'm not just trying to call it out because it can happen in any sport or just not even in a sport just if a woman is exercising a lot Uh, but it's it's known uh, and the, the three main tenets of the female athlete triad are, um, uh, what are the three? It's, um, well, let's just say that when a woman loses her period for a long time, her bone, um, she she starts to rapidly lose bone and it actually increases her lifetime risk of osteoporosis. Uh, and so it's, it's interesting because um, we think of, we often think of the period as being not as important for overall health. But if you think about it, if a woman's having three or four periods a year the evidence would show that she is more likely to lose bone mass more rapidly uh, and just to I, I feel like i'm kind of talking in circles but to take it back to what what a normal menstrual cycle would look like and, and how it could possibly be related to bone loss In a healthy cycle, during the first half of the cycle, you're actually producing estrogen as you approach ovulation. And after ovulation, you're producing progesterone. And so in a healthy cycle, you'd have about the same number of days of estrogen as you would progesterone. And um, estrogen and progesterone are essential in building and maintaining normal bone mass. So when you have a woman who stops ovulating and therefore stops menstruating, as is the case with hypothalamic amenorrhea, she's no longer producing significant amounts of progesterone. So essentially, if you're not ovulating, you're not making progesterone. And so without progesterone, your, your bones are not able to develop and um, kind of maintain normally. So if that isn't a clear example of how essential your menstrual cycle is to overall health, you know, I don't know what is.
0: Well, that's so crazy because women, I mean, we know that osteoporosis, that's like a big fear of a lot of women, especially as we start to get older. And we're like, we just got to take more calcium. <laughs> it's like, yeah, is not that interesting. <laughs> just drink some milk. You'll be fine. Um, all right. So that's a really clear example. You know, you were talking about, um, it's like th- th- this came with our bodies, and yet we're like consistently told that we should opt out of it. I mean, I even think of, like, the way that healthcare practitioners sometimes talk about our periods. Like, oh, that pesky, like, you know, you don't want those pesky cramps. You know, it's like always, it just kind of reinforces the the message that we should be divorcing ourselves from our bodies. Like, we get that over and over and over, as particularly as women. Um, when you were talking about cycle tracking, I recently started to do this just out of curiosity. I've always been super... Um, super regular. So this is never something I really paid close attention to, but I'm just curious to see how it affects my mood and my energy levels and my hunger and all that, all these sorts of things. I have an autoimmune disease and sometimes I'll, I'll notice just like a little bit of a flare up right before I have my period. Um, so I just, I think it's, it's cool to like, track how I'm feeling in relationship to my menstrual cycle. And it's just one, one extra step that I'm taking to reconnect with my, with my body. Um, I'd love for you to talk more about what you were talked a little bit about what, what a normal healthy menstrual cycle looks like, but can you take it from the top? Like day one is this and just kind of walk us through the quote unquote 28 day cycle.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, and so <clears throat> when we think about what a normal healthy menstrual cycle is or what it entails, we often just think about your period and your length. And so I've had it where I ask a client, okay, so what, tell me how long your menstrual cycle typically is. And they'll tell me, oh, you know, four to five days, because they're talking about their period. <laughs> because we really don't, it's it, when we're, what we're learning when we learn about our cycles is it's like you have this period and then fast forward, we don't really know what happens in between there. And then you have another <laughs> one, right? Um, so what I can kind of break down all the different sections but day one of your cycle is day one of your period and it's the day where you actually have a true characteristic flow so the, the day where you have to actually do something about it and you know many women might find that they have a couple of days of spotting or something like that it's not uncommon but you would actually count day one as the day that you start to flow. And in a healthy cycle, your period would last anywhere from about three to seven days. And you would expect your period to start moderate to heavy and basically kind of crescendo, decrescendo, so gradually taper off. You would expect to lose the majority of your blood during the first two to three days. So it's typically the heaviest. Uh, And then, you know, the the latter part of it is typically a bit lighter. Uh, In a healthy cycle, you would expect your period to come and go without a whole lot of fuss so although a lot of us have been told and our culture really normalizes periods as being this horrible time where pain is normal and it's supposed to be terrible and you're supposed to have severe mood swings and it's all kind of just part of the curse quote unquote which is a really terrible way to look at it it in a healthy cycle you would your a healthy period would have uh, little to no pain so uh, it almost feels controversial to say that because we are so ingrained to think that periods are supposed to be horrible, but in any other situation, pain is considered to be a problem. Um, and to bring this home, you know, I've had a number of clients where I'm having this conversation and I'll ask them about their pain and I really typically have to kind of dig because as for any woman who's listening who's had period pain, you're just kind of used to it, you deal with it and you don't really think anything of it and so when I kind of get in there like how big is the pain like or how how severe is the pain how long does it last etc oh you know it's not that bad I know a friend of mine she you know throws up when she has her period so you know mine isn't that bad and then I'll say something like well you know if you're partnered and your partner is male if he had the same pain in his penis for a couple days how do you think he would feel (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I think it's just important for someone to actually say out loud that although pain is really common it's not normal and pain is a sign of of a problem, which could be anything from inflammation, uh, because the pain with menstruation is associated with an increase in inflammation, to something as severe as endometriosis, which is linked to infertility and extreme pain in some circumstances.
0: What would you say is normal when you're bleeding? Is fatigue normal, lethargy, would those be normal symptoms, or should you just kind of feel just same old, same old, under ideal circumstances?
1: under ideal circumstances, I think it's important to note that, I mean, with the menstrual cycle, we have kind of the physicality of what's happening, but there are also some degree of emotional shifts that occur. You know, any woman who's had a menstrual cycle for a period of time, like a natural one, where not not a pill cycle, but you know, when she's actually ovulating and having her period, uh, she'll notice that throughout the cycle, there can be shifts in energy. So it's not uncommon to feel a bit more tired um, and a bit more uh, even just low i guess you could say and i don't mean it severe i don't mean a severe intense depression but i mean it's it's not uncommon to feel a bit lower mood emotionally energetically around your premenstrual to your menstrual and it's not uncommon to feel more energetic and outgoing around the time of ovulation Uh, i think it's there's an old medical term called menstrual molamina, which refers to certain symptoms that happen after ovulation and so you know many women who are kind of tracking and paying attention to their cycles might find that after ovulation they experience some degree of mild breast tenderness um, they may experience some of those premenstrual symptoms, like a little bit of bloating or um, just change in mood and things like that. And so, some of those symptoms that only occur post ovulation are normal. Um, there was a research paper that I was looking at uh, when I was writing the PMS section of the book, and it found that you know 90% of women experienced at least one, you know, pre premen- like PMS symptom prior to their periods. And if you hear something like that, like if 90% of women felt tired after running a marathon, would we be like, oh, she's got post-marathon syndrome. I don't know, man. Uh, So there's some degree of these mood shifts that are normal. And I would say that when it gets to the point that it's actually, you know, problematic, it's causing problems, you're noticing it. And it just, we all have a bit of intuition that would say, this doesn't feel right. You know, this feels like it's a little too much. Like I'm bawling for two days every time. My period's coming like this doesn't feel right so i think we can kind of have that sense of like some degree is normal but there's a limit to what we can call normal
0: okay and as far as the bleed goes what what let's say you have a really um light flow or even a really heavy flow that's probably more common having a pretty heavy flow can those be signs that something's wrong
1: well, yes, absolutely. So what we would consider normal in terms of the amount of bleeding would be anywhere from about 25 milliliters, so total, to about 80 milliliters. So if you're using, say, a menstrual cup, uh, menstrual cups that come in different sizes, but typically they're kind of around an ounce, some of them. Some of the smaller ones might be a little bit smaller, but what that means is, in, in one way of looking at it, is that throughout your whole period, you should at least fill one cup once if you were to add it all up. Uh, And if you're using pads and tampons, uh, you know, your average size pad or tampon, like your regular pad or tampon, if it's fully soaked, it's going to hold, you know, anywhere from five to about 10 or 12 milliliters of bleeding. So if you're using like a super pad, it would hold a little bit more. Uh, So then in in an entire period, you would expect to fill, you know, a tampon or a pad at least five times, like throughout the whole thing. So that's the lower end of normal. And then the higher end of normal, and the research is consistently about 80 milliliters. And the reason for that is because if you're bleeding more than 80 milliliters, you're at a greater risk of developing iron deficiency anemia. And you're also more likely to potentially um, have kind of like a comorbidity. So uh, for instance, women who have fibroids in certain locations in their uterus are more likely to bleed Uh, heavier uh, and heavy bleeding can be associated with a a number of different factors so if you're uh, and to also so with that in mind if you're using a menstrual cup then if you're filling it more than about you know five times or so like filling it full more than five times then that kind of puts you over the 80 milliliter mark and then using pads and tampons if you're kind of filling more than like five a day you know for the, over the course of your cycle. I'm trying to give like a rough sense of like what this would look like yeah, <laughs> yeah. in real world terms. Uh, and so just to put it out there, I mean, all women aren't the same. So when I talk about this range, uh, so the average falls somewhere between like 4, 45 to 50 uh, milliliters of bleeding. And so um, there's some women that just bleed lighter and they've always bled lighter and they just don't have really heavy periods. And some women are always on the heavier side. But if you are regularly bleeding, more than that, more than the 80 milliliters that we talked about. It's not a bad idea to just, the next time you're in your doctor's office, just, you know, have them check your iron levels. Uh, There's an interesting relationship there. If you have heavy bleeding, of course you're bleeding more, so you're going to potentially lose more iron. But if you're deficient in iron, you're likely to bleed more, right? So. Either way, if you have really heavy periods, you want to just have your iron checked fairly regularly to make sure everything's fine. And if the bleeding is quite excessive, or if it goes on for longer than that seven day period regularly, or if you have bleeding kind of throughout your cycle all the time, then it's, it's worthwhile just having your doctor do an ultrasound, just just you know have them check you out just to make sure that there's nothing else going on. First of
0: all, what do you mean we're not all the same?
1: I know, right? Like, we're not all robots that have 28 day cycles and ovulate on
0: day 14 and all bleed the same amount. Yes, correct. Can't, my brain can't wrap itself around that. Um, all right. So, okay. So, if you do fall into one of these two categories um, and you're worried about it, so the next step would be to get uh, an ultrasound. Would you also recommend having hormones looked at?
1: Well, it would depend on the symptomology. So, if we're talking specifically about the period and heavy bleeding, I find that it's I, I find it really interesting because sometimes I work with women who have like a long history of really heavy bleeding. So, when we're talking about it, you know, they're really falling outside of that normal range. And I'll say something like, "Well, has your doctor ever? Have you talked to your doctor about this?" Well, yeah. And you know, has have you ever been checked for? You know, like has anyone ever asked a question? Of um, I actually have an example um, in the book: a woman. Um, she she reached out to me and she basically said you know uh, we didn't she said a friend of mine had been bleeding so she basically had some sort of bleeding every day for six months so she was uh, it it may have been heavier like but you know even if you're just spotting but i she didn't specify how much bleeding there was but basically there was a woman and she was bleeding for basically six months like all day for six months and she went to her doctors and she, she either was having a hard time getting an appointment or something like that but she had to kind of press her doctors to look into this further because they were kind of like oh, well you know or let go on the pill or whatever but um, eventually she really pressed them and it was discovered later on that she actually had uterine cancer. Wow. So it's really important to understand what a healthy cycle looks like because the bleeding what I say about the period is there should be a beginning a middle and an end and then it should stop so it should kind of be like a sentence. <laughs> um, if it goes on and on and on or if you're having uh, regular bleeding kind of throughout or if you have bleeding that goes on for weeks that's a problem and uh, you know those, that's a sign that's kind of the way we would use the cycle as if a fifth vital sign outside of that normal parameter we got to start looking at what it could be and just a note about the pain you know so pain anything beyond just like mild discomfort you know you're having to use advil several times in your cycle that's outside of, although it's very very common and a lot of women experience pain with menstruation i mean that's again a sign other uh, uh, we can all appreciate that outside of menstruation you know pain is considered a problem it's only with periods that for some reason our culture thinks it's completely fine for women to be in outrageous amounts of pain every
0: cycle so that is not normal um which is crazy because we all think that it is we all buy into that that myth for sure um
1: well and i can go into that just a little bit because i know that there's women listening that are kind of like well what do you mean and so um what, one of the things that, that I did just to kind of help to explain this process of like, what is menstruation, because we know that we bleed, but we don't necessarily know like what's going on. And so um, what's happening in the uterus, I mean, outside of menstruation, bleeding is an indication of injury and tissue damage. And so menstruation, similar to ovulation and even labor, are normal inflammatory processes in the body. And menstruation does in- involve tissue injury and restoration. So when you menstruate, you're quite literally shedding your uterine lining. And so, um, your uh, in order for this to happen, your body produces prostaglandins, and prostaglandins are uh, you know associated with inflammation. So they're kind of part of this normal inflammatory process. And their role is to um, cause smooth muscle contractions so that the lining can actually you know be shed. So in order for this to happen, there's some degree of normal inflammation. And if you understand menstruation as a normal inflammatory process, then all of a sudden then it makes sense that if you are eating a diet, say that you are exposing yourself to a lot of inflammatory factors. We live in a world where we're surrounded by chemicals that are estrogenic. So xenoestrogen chemi- uh, xenoestrogenic chemicals are in everything from the air to every single beauty product ever made for women. Um, and so all of these things can disrupt this normal inflammatory process. So when a woman is experiencing, you know, moderate to mo- like moderate to, you know, extreme pain during menstruation, it's an indication that there's an inflammatory kind of issue going on there where it's like too much on the inflammatory side and when they do testing on women, women that have painful periods have been shown to have four times the level of prostaglandins as women who don't have the pain. So we have the evidence to show that pain is associated with um, just too much inflammation And then of course for um for for a number of women a certain percentage of women that have really painful periods do have endometriosis and so severe pain with menstruation can be a very important sign that there is something deeper going on Um, because endometriosis can be an extremely debilitating disease that can be that can um, that's associated with infertility and so um, one of the challenges is that with you know when you go into your doctor's office with these types of issues typically you're given the pill or painkillers and neither of those actually fix anything so the pill doesn't fix or cure anything it doesn't regulate the cycle it basically stops you from having a natural cycle and kind of covers up the problem and then if in the future you decide that you want to have kids or you want to you know come off the pill and sort yourself out the problem wasn't fixed we basically put like a band-aid over the problem but the problem is still there and so you're basically kind of putting it off so that you have to deal with it later and I recognize that for many women that's how they manage the pain and that's how I did (laughs) I had really painful periods when I was a teenager and I didn't know what else to do so I was put on the pill at you know age 15 or something like that Um, but you know the pill didn't actually get rid of the period pain because every time it came off the pain was still there until I figured out how to address it
0: So that's, I love how you brought that to light, that menstruation is a normal inflammatory process that's happening in your body. It's just that when that inflammation gets out of control due to other life factors, whether that's an inflammatory diet or the xenoestrogens that we're consistently exposed to, um, this can increase the inflammation and increase the pain. So that's really a good indication that, hey, something's going on that needs your attention.
1: And imagine if we just had that awareness of the cycle (laughs) instead of just assuming that period pain is normal and we just have to put up with it, you know? Um, How different would the world be? Uh, This is out of control right um well and you had asked me about the cycle so we've covered menstruation
0: would you like me yeah, to kind of go through the- <laughs> you do. you're like it's menstruation because it's like sex ed menstruation question mark wait a month menstruation yeah so we're going to talk about what happens in
1: between now <laughs> okay um so you know day one is day one of your period and you know the period lasts about three to seven days and so after your period comes to an end we're in the pre-ovulatory phase so we can divide the cycle into two main phases which is pre-ovulatory and post-ovulatory and so as you approach ovulation you know that's when your ovaries are getting ready for you know ovulation they're preparing the eggs and as the eggs develop you start producing estrogen so what you would expect to see if you were paying attention to your cycles is after your period stops you would typically have a couple of days Uh, which I would call dry days as a fertility awareness educator, where you're not seeing any cervical mucus. Uh, Cervical mucus can look like uh, raw egg whites, so kind of stretch between your fingers, it's clear, and when you're wiping yourself, it feels really slippery. And it can also look like creamy white hand lotion. And so as you approach ovulation, if you're paying attention, you'll start to notice this shift from dry, so there's not really anything there, to actually seeing whether it's the lotiony, creamy type, cervical mucus or the the clear kind of raw egg whitey stretchy type cervical mucus and so you would expect to have about two to seven days of cervical mucus before ovulation and then once you ovulate then you would expect that mucus to dry up so you're not going to you know see it anymore and then you would expect to have your period about 12 to 14 days later and so when you break the cycle down into those parts, so we've got the period and then we've got the mucus as you approach ovulation, ovulation is essential for a healthy cycle. (laughs) Um, And then after ovulation to have about two weeks before your period, then we have all of these aspects of the cycle that we can pay attention to. For instance, you know, if you are stressed, if you experience some sort of stress, whether it's like acute stress, you know, let's say you get on an airplane or something or something happens at work, then if it happens before you ovulate, one of the ways that it can show up in the cycle is that ovulation. You know can be delayed so and this can also apply to health issues so in your example of your friend who had you know three to four periods a year what that means when you understand what the menstrual cycle is is that her ovulation was delayed for months at times uh, because the the pre ovulatory phase is the most variable if a woman has a really long cycle so if she has like a 52-day cycle, meaning she goes 52 days without a period, then what it means is that her ovulation was delayed for like a month until she finally, um, you know, ovulated because the second oh. half of the cycle is pretty stable. So when you start charting your cycles, let's say, for example, that you're charting and you notice that you typically ovulate and get your period like 12 days later, it's not all, like you're not a robot or a machine. You, I've, I've said that a lot, but I'll just keep saying it. Um it are you know we we do have some natural kind of variability depending on what's happening in our lives but for the most part that second half of the cycle is pretty stable so if you're you typically get your period 12 days after ovulation you'll typically it'll typically be around that that part um length to the point that you can actually predict your period when you're charting which can be very useful
0: so one thing that you said that i want to circle back around to you said you would you'll notice this if you're paying attention and i just want to throw up a little <laughs> you know like a, like underline that put it in bold because we since day 1 are taught really to not pay attention to this wherever like our vaginas and everything that comes out of them are yucky gross weird not to be talked about not to be looked at not to be touched and not to be addressed like something to be ashamed about and so what you're saying is that like no we actually have to pay attention to this so i love that
1: well and i can give you just a a great example of it because a lot of us have noticed cervical mucus at some point in our lives but we didn't know what it is because no one told us about it so um there's a couple ways that this can show up so if you've ever had the experience where you're kind of hanging out living your life and you feel like wetness like you feel like your period came (laughs) and then you run to the bathroom because you're like oh my god my period came and there's no period that can be mucus um because during your fertile window, you might actually have that sensation of wetness, like it actually feels like something's there. But if you don't know about cervical mucus, you're looking for blood and there's no blood. So you're like, okay, nothing's there. Um, sometimes you, some women may have experienced that where there's, there's certain times where you go to the bathroom and you wipe yourself and it's like really slippery and you have to, it feels like you have to use, like you have to wipe a couple of times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? It yeah. just, because it feels like there's something there. And again, if you're not really thinking about it and no one ever told you about it, then you. You wouldn't think anything of it um i can remember this as a teenager kind of looking back because i remember there was a a point in time where all of a sudden like i felt wet sometimes and uh my you know i I remember talking to my mom about it and she just bought me a box of panty liners and like that was the end of it (laughs) um now looking back i'm like well duh like that was my cervical mucus, but nobody told me about that um and then another way that it can show up and i've heard this from a number of women is you know we're also taught that the only thing to ever come out of our vaginas is um, is a discharge right or like when we have an infection or yeah. wrong? so just imagine how many women have their normal cervical mucus uh, prior to ovulation but they have no idea what it is so they just see this like gooey you know like this stretchy fluid coming out make an appointment to see their doctor uh, and sometimes the doctors will run a test you know do a screen and you know you don't got any stis you know it's all coming back normal some doctors might even prescribe antibiotics right if you don't know that it's just like a normal so it's really important just overall just in general as women for us to have a basic understanding of our bodily functions even just to save that doctor's appointment like when it's cervical mucus is a normal and healthy part of being a woman and when you're tracking your cycles you would actually just expect to see it as you approach ovulation and the reason that we pay attention to it and it's so central for fertility awareness is because most of us have heard that sperm can survive in your body for up to five days but it's kind of like it's just thrown out there as if it's just like any time (laughs) <laughs> but it's only during your fertile window. So it's actually your cervical mucus, so that clear, stretchy stuff or that kind of lotion type mucus before ovulation. Sperm can survive in that for up to five days. So any day that you see mucus is a day where if you had unprotected sex, pregnancy is possible.
0: That's really cool because we're definitely not taught that. I just I remember going through most of my life thinking I could get pregnant at any time. At right, any time. it's like terrorism. <laughs> I was terrified too. It is so funny. Um, okay, a couple of questions about ovulation. Can you feel it? Like, is is there any slight cramping or anything like that associated with it usually? Some women feel it. Some women do not. Okay, so that's cool.
1: I, I think it's. Um, it's somewhere like half of women or something like that I I would need to kind of look for a better stat but uh, so there's something called mittelschmerz which is like I'm sure I'm butchering that because I'm not German but it's a German word for kind of like middle pain and that is what um, ovulation pain is called and so some women do feel it and so it can feel kind of like a a dull throbbing and it's typically on one side of the other. So if you actually pay attention to that, you can um, kind of keep track of like which side ovulation is happen- happening on. Um, some women may feel like a twinge or something like that. And when I, when I mention this, it shouldn't be outrageously painful or anything. Um, so if you're feeling a little bit of like a, a twinge or like a little dull, dull throbbing or something like that, you know, some women just feel it. I know personally for myself, I felt ovulation pain pretty much every time to the point that when I was a teenager I almost got scheduled for an appendectomy because I had this pain in my side and my doctor was like well come back at four o'clock and we'll just take your appendix out my mom was like wait a minute wait a minute (laughs) (laughs) so she took me to my pediatrician and she was like um honey you're ovulating and I was like oh that's what that is and quite literally every time I ovulate uh, pretty much I feel it so some women feel it but other women just don't don't feel it so it's not like you know, if you don't feel it or if you feel it, like I wouldn't necessarily worry. The only thing I want to say is that if you, if it's really, really painful, it shouldn't be really, really painful. So that would be a problem indicating that maybe there's something happening with ovulation or with
0: uh, cysts or cystic tissue in the ovaries. I think the twinge is a good way to describe it because that's typically what I feel. I also get crazy hungry like <laughs> two, two to three days around ovulation I can't I I like will, will eat a horse if I could <laughs> I get Grace. so hungry which um, I didn't realize that until I started really paying attention to my body at different points of the month um, and it, it, I just want to drive that point home because there's a lot of times where women are like why am I so hungry I'm so broken I'm failing at life and it's like well it could be a hor- you know it could have a lot to do with your cycle and your hormones so just pay pay more attention to that um is looking at your cervical mucus is that the best way to know if you're ovulating i know that people will take their temperature there's ovulation strips what do you think is the best approach there
1: well i think that um so I, for me personally, I'm a bit biased because I think step one is having that basic understanding of your body. So I think um, you can use all the tools that you want, the ovulation um, strips and the, you know, taking your temperature. But I think for me, the fundamental, just basic understanding of the biology is really helpful. So understanding cervical mucus is really helpful because it's something that when you, it's something you produce as you approach ovulation, it's, it, it kind of reflects back to you the changes in your hormone levels. So you'll see your cervical mucus when your estrogen levels are highest as you're approaching ovulation. And then once you ovulate, you know, you produce significant amount of progesterone that suppresses that production. So in a way, tracking your mucus is an indirect way of tracking your hormones.
0: Ooh, that'll get people. That'll get them. Yeah. Well,
1: and it's really interesting because it's quite literally what it is. And so uh, there's uh, the three main signs of fertility to pay attention to with fertility awareness would be your cervical fluid, so your cervical mucus, your basal body temperature, and then your cervical position. And so with the basal body temperature, it's, it doesn't help to predict when you're going to ovulate. So if, for example, if you're trying to have a baby and you're trying to figure out when the best time is to have a baby, your cervical mucus is the star of the show. Um, because cervical mucus can keep sperm alive for up to five days and uh, one way I've been describing it uh, lately to clients especially is that let's say that you're paying attention to your cycle and you go into the bathroom and you're like oh look at all this slippery stuff this is amazing wow I can stretch up to my fingers neat I'm gonna take a picture and put it on Facebook just kidding <laughs> um, but anyway so you notice your clear stretchy because on Monday And then you have sex on Monday but then your partner has to like go to France or something for work (laughs) and so you don't have sex for the rest of the week and let's say you ovulate on Friday well you can get pregnant on Friday um, when you ovulate because of the sex you had on Monday because the sperm is still there still hanging out still alive and so that is why cervical mucus is central uh, uh, and essential to understand that when you're avoiding pregnancy you can also see why this would be important Yeah. sure (laughs) because you really have to get that before ovulation if you see mucus like whether it's the creamy stuff or the clear stretchy stuff that if you have sex on a day that you see mucus it keeps the sperm alive so you can have sex on one of those days ovulate up to you know five days later and get pregnant because the sperm is still there still hanging out um and so i mean there's there's a bit more to it than that but i think that's that's why the mucus is i would say for a woman in either situation um mucus is really primary and it's just really understand, uh, really helpful to have an understanding of the role of mucus uh, temperature is very very helpful as well so temperature doesn't help you to predict when you're going to ovulate and it really doesn't help to tell you anything in terms of like when would be the best time to have sex or anything like that but it helps you to confirm ovulation so your temperature uh, what the basal body temperature is is a, a measure of your resting metabolism and so what that means is that like if you were to go to sleep Uh, you know for five hours or more your body is in a state of rest and so your base if you were to take your temperature that's giving you a baseline temperature so kind of first thing in the morning before you get out of bed and that is a measure of your metabolic rate and so what happens is that when you ovulate you produce progesterone for the second half of your cycle and progesterone has a thermogenic effect on the body so progesterone actually raises your body temperature and it's really neat because if you're tracking your temperature on your favorite app or on an actual you know paper chart you can actually see this difference so it's like you could do a science experiment on yourself and you can track how your temperature changes after ovulation. And so because it happens as a result of the th- the kind of like the fallout after ovulation, it doesn't help you to predict anything, but it does help you to confirm. So when you see your temperature has risen, your mucus dried up, and then also your cervical position changes, then you know you've ovulated. So if you're trying to have a baby, that's helpful because then you can, um, like you would kind of keep having sex until you know that you've ovulated <laughs> uh, just to make sure you don't miss it. And then if you're trying to avoid pregnancy, you know that after you've ovulated, after that temperature goes up, after your cervical mucus dries up, it is physically, scientifically, literally impossible for you to get pregnant.
0: Okay. Um, Is this, you mentioned fertility awareness a couple of times. Is this what what you're talking about? And is this, if somebody's looking for a non-hormonal birth control option, is this a viable option?
1: That's a really good question. I think a lot of people, when they hear fertility awareness, they think of the rhythm method because that is our only frame of reference for it. And so the rhythm method is a method of birth control that involves mathematical calculations and averages and predictions. And so um, this is how a lot of us think about our menstrual cycle, even to this day. So when the pill was created, they put... um, what happened, I'll just tell a quick story and then kind of get to the point, but when the pill was first created, what happened was the first kind of group of women that used it, they didn't have, they didn't put in the withdrawal bleed. So women were just taking the pill continuously and so they just didn't have periods. And that was in the 50s, the late 50s before the pill came out in in 1960. And so they had no, um, precedent (laughs) for that and so they just stopped ovulating they stopped getting their periods and the women actually thought they were pregnant so some of these women had been trying to get pregnant and so they were like excited that they got they were pregnant and the the doctors tried to convince them that they weren't and so they weren't able to do that when the women finally realized that the only reason they weren't getting the their periods was because of the pill they actually were devastated and like you know it was really horrible for them. And so then the, doc, the the creators of the pill decided to actually do the 28-day pill cycle that we know and love. So by doing it that way, the intention from the very beginning was to mimic this, um, this, uh, this normal cycle. So we have this idea even from then, the pill has kind of set the stage for us to expect and assume that the cycle is always going to be about 28 days. Uh, A healthy cycle can fluctuate anywhere from like 24 to 35 days, Um, but we still have this kind of um, expectation, I guess you could say, uh, that the cycle is always gonna be that long. and so when it comes to charting your cycles, like going back to the rhythm method, the idea was basically that you could um, get a sense, like take chart your cycles for like a couple of months and get a sense of what it typically is, and then assume that it's just going to continue to be that way. So um, the rhythm method was very much based on like you have to have regular cycles, and then you you know you can expect to ovulate around day 14, and so if you avoid having sex around day 14, then you won't get pregnant, which is
0: not a, uh. a viable method of birth control right because because you were saying earlier something like travel or stress could throw off ovulation so it could potentially differ from month to month that's right Uh, so with fertility
1: awareness it's a different philosophy altogether because what you're actually doing is you're learning to um, it's more of a practice and so the practice means that each day you're gonna just check for mucus and it sounds like a lot of work uh, but you brush your teeth every day so anyone who brushes their teeth every day if they're motivated can also chart their cycles. Um, essentially um, you know every woman who's listening to this when she goes to the bathroom she's gonna like later today she's gonna like wipe herself so I don't have to tell anybody to do that so when you're charting your cycles you're you're paying attention to the three main signs uh, you would just pay attention to mucus and you'd basically do that when you go to the bathroom like you're just gonna you know I call it um, intentional wiping or (laughs) conscious wiping where you're actually paying attention to see if there's anything there and then you'll start to see that you you know what your mucus pattern looks like as you approach ovulation Um, and then your temperature reading to confirm ovulation and there's rules around it so uh, if you're using it as a birth control method it's a good idea to pick a specific type of fertility awareness charting so there's a lot under the umbrella of fertility awareness based methods there's a lot of different methods so i teach the justice method there's the Creton method the billings method there's taking charge of your fertility there's devices you know like um, the daisy and there's all these you know there's all kinds of different ways to chart but it's good to kind of pick one and learn those rules understand them and so the method i teach falls into the category it's called symptothermal so it's a combination of looking at your mucus signs and all that with your temperature and there's research that has been done on it so to your question about is it effective well um you know the studies that have been done where women have been taught a specific method by trained instructors and they know what they're doing um, and they're using the method correctly it's up to 99.4 percent effective because if you think about it from a scientific standpoint so if You can only get pregnant on specific days of your cycle. From a scientific perspective, there's only five, there's only um, five or there's only a six day window when pregnancy can happen. And the reason for that is because sperm can live for up to five days in your mucus, and then ovulation only happens on one day of the cycle, and five plus one is six. So, from a scientific perspective, there's only six days of the cycle that you can get pregnant. So in order to make it into an effective birth control method, we do have to be a bit more conservative and we have to add like a three-day kind of caveat at the end. So, you know, we have to have rules to make sure that it's effective and then test those rules scientifically to make sure they're, they're valid. But 99.4% effectiveness and really and truly, if there's only a small window of time that you can get pregnant and you can figure out which days those are and avoid unprotected sex on those days, then you can use the method successfully to prevent pregnancy without hormones. And there's tens of, if not hundreds of thousands of women around the world who do this, and this is their way, this is their birth control method, and they use it effectively.
0: That's huge, and that kind of answers the question that we get all of the time, like, what are my options? So thank you for going through all of that. Um, Do you have any opinion, one way or the other, about the copper IUD? In the research that you've done, has that come up? I'm sure it has.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I think that the copper IUD is, um, it's a good option, right? A good non-hormonal option for women. Um, and I think my stance on birth control in general is that it's really important as women to have informed consent. So I think that it's just really important for us to know, um, like, you know, how it works, what it does, and then what are the possible side effects so that as a woman, like if you experience some of those side effects, you know that it could be related. So with the copper IUD, I mean, obviously one of the main benefits of it is that you do, you are able to continue cycling. It doesn't interfere um, with, like it doesn't interfere with ovulation. So when you have the copper IUD inserted, you'll continue to have, you'll continue to ovulate and to have periods. Um, some of the side effects associated with the copper IUD for women who have painful periods already, we talked about inflammation and how that's related to the pain. So, one of the ways that the copper IUD works is by causing a localized inflammation inside the uterus. And also, the copper itself has some degree of a spermicidal property. So, um, essentially, it prevents implantation. So, it's possible that the egg could be fertilized but then not be able to implant. Um, So for some women, they would have a problem with that, right? Um, But also it's it's just helpful to know. So if you already have like painful periods or your periods are heavy, putting in the copper IUD will make that worse in most cases, because some women experience heavier bleeding and a a little bit of cramping. Um, I recently released a a couple of episodes interviewing women who use the copper IUD and just shared their experience. And two women, two of the women who I interviewed shared that, you know, they had occasional cramping so I think that that type of it's, it's just helpful to know like not every woman would experience those types of things but at least if you know if you do experience it then you could kind of reevaluate and, and see um, and then with all birth control methods um, all of them there's always a, a failure rate and so there is a small percentage of women who use IUDs whether it be copper or hormonal who conceive
0: okay that's also important to know.
1: Yeah well and I'll just quickly share you know I um, it was a really powerful interview with a woman who used uh, her copper IUD because for me I think we are all adults like here right so we can if, if if you're thinking about getting the copper IUD like we all know that nothing's 100% even even vasectomies sometimes right so um, nothing's 100% like there's always like a tiny little chance that it could not work and so I think what happened in her case was that she she did get pregnant but it had been like three years since she had it, so she didn't even, it didn't even occur to her that that could happen. And it was ectopic, so there were certain symptoms associated with it and a lot of pain, but again, it was kind of the last thing in her mind, like I couldn't be pregnant really. And so for me, it's more of just like, um, like I said, I don't have, uh, I think the copper ID is a really good option. I just think it's just like everything else, I would say, When you're in the doctor's office they should let you know well there's a tiny chance of you know pregnancy and if it were to happen there's a slightly increased chance that it might be ectopic so if that happened these would be the symptoms to watch for and you'd want to like just check in with your doctor right away. I feel like a simple conversation like that going over the the, um, and this would include all birth control methods but a simple conversation that's honest about the possible side effects can go such a long way.
0: Well, like what you said about informed consent, there's just not a whole lot about that. And I don't think any of us um, doing this work or telling people you should not go on birth control, or you should feel shame about that decision at all. We're just saying like, be informed, be informed, make an informed decision. And unfortunately, it's that information piece that's lacking. And to kind of pull it all first full circle, there isn't any risk with doing everything that you're talking about. There's no risk involved with that. It's just being it's paying attention it's being aware of what's happening with your within your own body um so you really can't lose by doing that by just tuning in more whether you decide to use fertility awareness method as birth control or not i think we could all stand to just understand our bodies a little bit more
1: Mm -hmm. well and something really interesting came out when i was interviewing um Uh, about the copper IUD and so this was a woman who had used it and then she was the one who had the pregnancy and then um, she eventually chose to have it removed a little while later and uh, Switched to fertility awareness and so what she said was that you know after she discovered fertility awareness and she discovered just the basics about how the cycle works and what happens as you approach ovulation with the cervical mucus as we talked about and you know how the period you know comes about 12 to 14 days later you can actually follow along when you have a copper IUD because you would still be ovulating so you would still see your mucus and then you would still have your period about 12 to 14 days after it dries up. So what, one of the things that she said was like, man, if I just had a general understanding of my cycle, I would have known right away that I was pregnant. Cause I would have known that my period was like, it, it was like, you know, past that 12 to 14 day window post ovulation. I would have had that heads up that something could be wrong. And so it all comes down to having that knowledge as women. Um, so I feel like the copper ID is a good option when it, you know, but it, there's, there's, certain women um, have tried it and didn't like it. And so if you're looking into having it, um, having it, I think it's helpful just to kind of know all of the the things that can happen and then you make those decisions. And then if it works for you, great, but it, if it doesn't, then at least you kind of know early. Cause I think for me, the challenge, uh, and it, this is also, um, I do on on my podcast I do like a pill reality series I've been doing it for a while and so I've interviewed all these women that have used different types of birth control and one of the challenges that I always see is that there's certain side effects that all kind of all birth control kind of has their different side effects right like each one has their own little categories of side effects and my biggest challenge is that when women don't know that those effects could be related to their birth control they often use that birth control for years and eventually like desperately google to find that it could be related you know we shouldn't have to be desperately googling we should just be told up front (laughs) what could happen so that if it ever shows up on our doorstep that we can just deal with it then
0: absolutely and i think it could also make us feel like nervous within our own bodies like why am i experiencing these symptoms what's going on right and one of the biggest the biggest um takeaways for me in understanding my cycle more and paying more attention to it is this like real feeling of empowerment I just feel a lot more um, strong in my own body first of all but also it's sort of reduced the grief that I feel in my body as somebody who ha- went undiagnosed I was very sick for a very long time and went undiagnosed for a very long time um, I have a lot of hyper vigilance in my body so when I start to feel something off I get f- I freak out and it was actually my husband that that really helped me understand that like hey you seem to feel a little bit worse before your period each month and just having that awareness was such a cool thing because it kind of like it it talks me off a ledge every month where I'm like oh god here it is it's the big one this is the big one I'm gonna it's gonna put me into a huge flare and then I'm like oh no I'm just getting my period this is very normal for me this is my normal and I just or like you know what I was talking about with the hunger thing like paying attention to that can be really self soothing for a lot of women because we don't go into the internal dialogue of what's wrong with me what's wrong with me what's wrong with me we understand what's right with us like this is my normal this is how my body reacts and you know all that kind of stuff and I think that's just huge because we don't learn that you know we don't we don't get that message ever
1: well, and if men had menstrual cycles. Oh, <laughs> um, but if, if we thought of our menstrual cycles as just a normal and healthy part of being a woman and we started to like really look deeper into the cycle. So, I mean, a lot of women are spreading messages about the menstrual cycle in a lot of different ways. And one of the ways, like, so let's pretend for a minute that we thought of the cycle thing as normal and the emotional shifts and energetic shifts that we experience throughout that cycle as being normal too. Um, you know, some women who get to the point where they're actually kind of planning certain things around their periods where they know that they typically have more outward energy in the pre-ovulatory phase so they'll kind of schedule meetings and calls and parties around that time and maybe they'll honor the fact that they tend to feel a little bit some women tend to feel a little bit more um, you know less vibrant maybe and, and more just um, introverted or whatever the case is but just a lot of women you know during that kind of pre-menstrual phase tend to just feel like kind of cocooning into themselves a little bit and so some women would kind of pay attention to how they feel throughout their cycle and organize that accordingly like hack the cycle type of thing um, and it, it's it's just so I find it really interesting because it, it, I think many of us miss the gravity of the situation so every every person on earth everybody is here because of their mother's menstrual cycle there's not a single person on earth who didn't pass through their mother's menstrual blood. So like, you know, think about that the next time that we're kind of talking so negatively about periods. It really makes you think, why don't we have more of a reverence and an appreciation for the menstrual cycle?
0: Absolutely. And I think that's such an awesome point to end on because <laughs> because you can't say anything beyond that. It's so true. <laughs> um, Mic drop. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So Lisa, before we close out here, why don't you tell people where they can find you? I'll be sure to link to your podcast in the show notes. I'll link to your book. Like I said, everybody needs that book. It's like an owner's manual for your body. Um, where else can they find you? Um, well, if
1: you are into podcasts, you can type in Fertility Friday in your favorite podcast player and you'll find me. I'll be the first one to come up. Um, the book is available on Amazon in um, paperback, ebook and audio. I just finished the audio book, which is really exciting.
0: Nice.
1: Um, and so uh, you can, the short link fertilityfriday.com audible for that. Uh, and you, yeah, you find me, just Google Fertility Friday and I will come up anywhere you are. <laughs>
0: Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Lisa. This was obviously a hugely important conversation, so I really appreciate you having it with us.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. If you'd like to submit a question to the show, fill out the contact form at erinholthealth.com. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. Take care of you.